podcast ain't played nobody. Let's go out with a guarantee right up front that we will only do 10 more minutes on the American Athletic Conference. Only 10, okay. Uh, Have we dwelled too long on the American Athletic Conference? I mean, you know, we've gotten distracted. We'll talk about the AAC and then we'll go into, you know, much different topics. So we've been returning to the AAC for two or three shows now. As one should. Uh, Of course. Forever Uh, forever in my heart. Set whatever limit you want because we're not going to adhere to it anyway. We're just going to talk until we're done talking. Well, so we closed last week's show. By the way, this is podcast ain't played nobody. It's college football marriage numbers and words. That's Bill Connolly. He's a robot. He invented the S and P Plus analytics system. He's the 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 good writer of two books that you can find on the Amazon dot com. Uh, my name is Stephen Godfrey. Uh, you can find me at thirty eight Godfrey. And uh, yeah, I didn't think of anything funny to say about myself this week, um, which is oh. I feel like apt, honestly. Um, we closed last week's show talking about where we we kind of saw the conference shaking out, but then. Was it today or yesterday as we record this on Wednesday that you put out your power rankings for the, for the conference? Yesterday. They went up on Tuesday. All right. So let's do this real fast. I know we've already talked about sort of UCF, Memphis, and Houston, and it's kind of their conference, but a lot of good depth. You So you did tiers. I'm going to run through these real fast. Then you can refresh everybody on tiers and why tiers are important. I think they're very important. Uh, let's go at the bottom. Uh, tier 4 was uh, number 11, UConn, and number 12, ECU. No surprise there. Tier three, um, Tulane, Tulsa, and Cincinnati. By the way, I think just from doing this show with you, I feel like you're changing the way I say the word Tulane. Tulane. No, in the South. Yeah, in the South, you hit the A more than the U. Right. Or the part of the South that I'm from. Um, No, that's why I say Tulane. But but I think people read it and I hear it now people are saying Tulane. Which I, hmm. which to me does not sound right at all. Um, no, that doesn't sound right at all. One of our editors is an alumnus. I'll ask him. Um, tier two. Well, he's wrong if he says it wrong. You know, that's just. Well, he's a Yankee, so yeah. they're wrong about a lot. Uh, tier and a Boston sports fan too. Uh, tier two, Temple. This is uh, four through seven. Sorry, Temple four, USF five, six Navy, seven SMU. Hold a pin on seven SMU because I'm going to ask you about. I'm, I'm going to parse your parse. Uh, in just a second, then tier one, number one, UCF, number two, Memphis, number three, Houston. Um, in terms of title contenders, mm-hmm. I would draw the line probably at six. Yeah. Yeah. I Seven and eight, SMU and Tulane were. Why? Okay, back up. Yeah, well, hang on, hang on. For me. Explain to you, first off, explain the tiers. And then I, I really want to know, I really want to know why. Are the tiers based solely on S&P Plus? No, no, no. This is all... Um, as it says at the top, I just promote it. How I perceive the conference's balance of power heading into the Good, season. That makes, that makes, I would rank the teams after writing thousands of words about each. Well, that makes better podcast website content because I want to know why. I'm just interested in the 2-3 split on the tiers where you have SMU in tier two and then you start with Tulane. And I'm really interested. Like To me, there's a tier that... Temple and USF occupy and Navy and SMU don't. Um, but I do think Navy's a borderline conference contender because they are, pardon the pun, a war machine. And when schedules break right, they can chew up more talented teams. So 
Right, and they I mean they won the um the West with this with this schedule two years ago, exactly. or this approximate schedule two years and ago. Ho- so, yeah, and, no, I, and hosted the the conference championship game, I might add. So um SMU and Tulane are I kind of went back and forth about them a lot. We'll say that SMU is in tier two because of you. I'll just blame you for it if it's why? wrong. Because uh, you talked me into uh, Sonny being a really good fit. No, there. no, no, no. Let me back up because people people hit me up about that, and, and I have friends in Texas in the in the industry that that were kind of giving me a different version of grief about that. I didn't say that SMU was going to win a national championship, and I didn't even say they were going to win an AAC championship. What I said was, much like I said the previous cycle about or two cycles ago i can't even remember now i raved about justin fuente going to virginia tech i don't think virginia tech is suddenly going to become uh alabama but when you talk about hirings like we do so freaking much in this sport and we make so many hires and fires and cycles right we're crazy in this sport culture fit to me it does not always it doesn't even equal success it's just a really really unique thing that happens now because most people are overextending or course correcting too much so they're either hiring someone who's completely different than the last guy just to be different (laughs) jeremy pruitt or they're just doing something they're just following a trend save an assistant for instance in rare cases i think you find the coach culturally and I'm talking about his personality, his recruiting style, his, his, his coaching philosophy, like what schemes and styles, all of that. It just fits. It fits the place he's going. And I think just like Fuente to Virginia Tech, I think, I think Sonny was a good fit at SMU. Well, and I think I didn't mean like you saying he was a good fit made me say, okay, they're going to be good. But it gave me it probably it, it led to me giving them a little bit more benefit of the doubt. Okay. And then I think probably SM, S&P Plus itself kind of convinced me of that too. Because I do – this is my own thinking, but I try to pay heed to like when I'm – strain from what s&p says uh, uh-huh. you know it's like it's like the NBA draft lottery where, where it's going to mostly shake out in order of record but there are going to be a couple of blips um i try to limit myself to just like a couple or not very many blips because then well because the projections are what they are for a reason so the uh, smu is projected 24 spots ahead of Tulane uh, in S&P, 74th versus 98th. Um, both offenses are going to be good. Uh, both defenses are going to be bad. But Tulane, uh, I, when I was writing the Tulane preview too, I got a little spooked by the simple fact that like on their defensive line, they lose four out of five guys and the fifth guy's a sophomore. In the back, in the um, uh, in the secondary, they've got a couple. They've got a, a, a pretty good playmaking cornerback, but they lost their nickelback, who made most of their uh, secondary play, or their nickelback in their corner. The two the two guys they lose made most of their plays in the back, mm-hmm. and so and their leading returning tackler is a safety uh, sophomore safety now. So that that spooked me a little bit, and I think I ended up dropping Tulane a little further than I expected. Their offense is going to be fun as heck. Uh, SMU's offense is going to be fun in a completely different way. So they're pretty similar teams, but I think in the end, the fit thing plus the S&P projection itself led me to putting SMU uh, higher than Tulane. And, and really, like, I could have been talked into putting both of them in Tier 2 or 3. It just ended up splitting that way. I do agree, though, that Tipple and USF are a lot closer to, like, 1A uh, than Navy and SMU. And and, and Navy, Navy, I always stray from S&P on just because S&P, is, the projections themselves, not the in-season data, but the projections themselves are basically designed to crap on the service academies Why? because they're based on recruiting rankings oh. and returning production oh. um, and, and recent performance. That is a part of it. But the returning production aspect, since they don't redshirt guys, they're always playing juniors and seniors. They're always losing like 
60% of their starters. Um, they account for that. They are very unique in the way they account for that. But overall projections wise, it just isn't, uh, it, it's, it, it ends up treating them very poorly. That's why I mentioned last week about creating sets of projections for power conference G five and service academies. Um, like I said, I got to take it with that more and I don't actually know that they're better, but when you kind of account for what makes a service Academy rise or fall, it basically comes down to is your quarterback returning. Uh, they have 2000 yard rushing quarterbacks returning. Therefore Navy's probably going to exceed their number 70, whatever projection or 90, whatever, whatever it is, um, by a, a pretty good amount. Their defense is still, um, a problem uh, 85th they're projected 85th uh, their defense is still problematic but their offense is going to be super fun as is two lanes as is SMUs um, and and so like you could I guess put all three of those in, in in any order you wanted but I would say the last four meanwhile Tulsa Sensi, UConn ECU are pretty set <laughs> they are by four they have by four have the most to prove Tulsa could bounce back pretty far I trust them a little more that's why I put them atop that group mm-hmm. but Cincinnati's got a lot to do a lot of pieces they just got to figure out what fits and where uh, and what to do with it and I think they're still a year away from figuring all that out uh, and UConn I actually kind of like UConn but all their good players are sophomores so it's going to be another year or two before they get things figured out as well ECU I um yeah uh yeah, we'll see who they yeah, are. That was the, we, we talked about it last week. This is the one program that has very, very little promise. It's a mean thing to say. I'll say mean things about other schools and other conferences, but not my beloved AAC. But ECU, somebody's got somebody's to be the doormat when you have so many, so many young coaches coming through promising programs. Like It's just, it's y'all's time, I guess. Um, I have a question. Yes. And this is the essence of this program in as much as I did not think about this at all until you said it. And yep. it's not something that I normally dive into. You will sometimes be at odds and sometimes really be at, be at odds with your own numbers. And you've identified a, a uh, not fallacy is probably not the right word, but you've identified a quirk inside of the returning production stats. Right. <clears throat> right. Service Academy makes a ton of sense for those of you who don't understand that when you're at a service academy you're running some iteration of the old school under center triple option um the service academies have different um requirements and different standards in terms of uh how long you can be there and how many people can practice so um that combined with the offense um combined with a lot of unique circumstances in the service academies allows for returning production to be measured differently i would i would roughly say you tell me if i'm wrong that if you're at a service academy, losing a lot of starters isn't necessarily as detrimental as it might be in another system. Is that fair to say? Right, because they always do. Uh, they always uh, they learn how to. <clears throat> yeah. Their system is built around like a system and and not uh, individual breakthrough talent. Okay. At least uh, aside from like quarterback. And so yeah, you're you're they, they have created a the system that most allows them to replace pieces. Plug and play, if you will. Now stand here right. with me for a second in what what's considered to be the lowest end of the talent spectrum. Okay. Let's look all the way across the planet at Alabama and Georgia. All right. One might argue that when systems are in place, and I'm really thinking more about Kirby Smart at Alabama than I am currently at Georgia because it's still pretty young in, in his tenure. Kirby, Kirby Smart at Alabama? 
Yes, Kirby, let me, like Kirby Smart as a defensive coordinator at Alabama. Okay. Oh, okay. So what I was saying was he's, he's still pretty young in terms of his time at the, as a head coach and like his guys, his system, his recruiting right at Georgia. When Kirby was at Alabama towards the end, like the thing was going, right? I'm being, I'm being very generic in my terminology here, but what I mean by that specifically is under Saban, under Smart, you knew the system, you knew what the system was. They were recruiting at such an insane level before Kirby decided to, to replicate Alabama across the division. Um, I don't want to say it was plug and play, but damn sure felt like it at certain points in which Alabama, yeah, they were Alabama to... was sending upwards of, I mean, this is just off the top of my head and we just finished the NFL draft like four, six, sometimes seven starters in the draft every year. Right. Between, uh, yeah, something. Close I mean, to that, it, yeah. It, year by year it was different, but I mean, you see those memes that they use in recruiting all the time, and and there there for a while it was getting embarrassing, right? And just in terms of what they were recruiting in February, what they were turning out in April. That to get back to the original point is also something where if you look and say Alabama has lost five to six starters, all three, four, five star guys. Right. If you are South Carolina, that is a huge blow but not at Alabama. Now to my point, when you, when you're, when S and P plus looks at this, they look at everyone the same way, right? Currently. Yeah. If I can figure out a way to break them out a little better, I will, but I haven't, I, I don't trust this. Is that po- but is that possible? What do you mean? To create a metric in returning production? Because I like when, when people ask me and b- believe me, if you want to hear something funny, it's, it's asking me to explain S and P plus or, or what makes up Bill's system. Cause I'll get that a lot on talk radio. Well, they'll be like, man, it's complete. What? That ain't the AP poll. And I try and get like, actually, well, here's why it's more important. You know, this is why certain stats are thrown out in games when it's a blowout or this or this. Or this. I think returning production is very, very important, but I think it's really, it's, it's really unique on the high end and the low end of the spectrum. Right. When you're like, you could say, oh, yeah. And I, I, and I, I would say that, and maybe it's not the the low end of the spectrum, quote unquote, outside of the service academy. I'm just, but just when you've got a, but when you've got a system uh, like a you know like a Mike Leach system, even you you could make the case that yeah. when it's more about the system than the individual pieces, uh, then number one, maybe that puts a ceiling on what you can accomplish. Um, you know, just because, you know, you are what you are, you're never going to have a breakthrough talent that you mold yourself around. And then that's, this is all, you know, very, very malleable thinking here, because obviously when, when, they, when Navy had Keena Reynolds, their ceiling was higher than it, than at other times, but uh, it, it was still a ceiling. They weren't going to win the national title. Uh, so basically maybe it prevents you from having the highest of highs, but it also probably saves you from the floor. Um or your floor is higher, I guess you could say. So, I mean, and, and, and I mean, that's not ever something you're going to be able to really plug into a, into a uh, set of projections because you're basically asking like, is this team a system or a non-system? And that doesn't really work. So, but even, the, uh, even to I mean, that end, like, and I know we haven't gotten to the Pac-12 yet, but um, Washington State loses a lot this year and people are... yeah. I mean, that's something that a lot of people are saying, Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm down on them, but not necessarily because they lose a lot of offensive pieces. Okay. All right. It's just a thought. It's just something that it's by and large, when we talk about the overwhelming majority of college football programs, returning production to me is very, very important. Um, it's extremely important when you're looking at that, at that relative to the tenure of the coach. 
Um, it added, I will say this, it adds a disproportionate amount of pressure on new coaches as well. Um, I'll give you yep. a good example. I was having a conversation, believe it or not, uh, with someone this weekend, uh, at Mississippi state and really? we were, yeah, we were talking about Joe Moorhead and we were talking about Mississippi state and Nick Fitzgerald and the depth that is, I mean, really arguably, better or, or or at least they have more talent in more places on one at ones and twos than maybe maybe they've ever had it's it's probably one of the deepest rosters i think that that malone would mullen was able to create at a program like that now yeah. returning production doesn't mean the same thing because they have a completely different staff coming in fans don't see it that way though like when i think the returning production thing becomes an albatross because what we say when you cook that down in the media is they're built to win now or they're, or uh, such and such a coach is inheriting a good situation. I think I've, I mean, these are cliches. I, I've written them several times, but like that may not necessarily be right. And for, for this coach in that system, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on coaches to come in and fit the, fit the personnel. I said, that seems to be a meme that we've, we've really, really kind of picked at the last two or three years of like, X coach is bringing in his system. No, 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 no. X coach is coming in, and what X coach should be doing is—I sh- I shouldn't say X coach. That means like coach a, X, not fire coach. Yeah, yeah. Co- coach X um, should be applying things that he knows to be successful that fit the people that are already there, and then over time mold it into what he wants it to be. And obviously, that depends on how. Like, if you're if you went three and nine last year, and a new coach is coming in, they don't care about maintaining the system. But yeah, in the, in the case of Mullen uh, and what he built, you do want you're not necessarily as tolerant of somebody. Like, it's going to take me a couple of years to get everything in. No, 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 we need to win. But I will say, I mean, as far as returning production goes, you could consider it an albatross, but it does still hint at your ceiling. FAU and FIU, especially FAU, they they almost led the nation in returning production last year so i mean the table was set for lane kiffin that wasn't all lane kiffin um that was him inheriting a really nice set of personnel to do what he needed to do and then after a few games figuring out what to do with it so um that maybe it, it increases expectations but it also raises the ceiling i think just a thought just just a thought just just letting you know in this college football marriage that i am interested in what you do buddy we get a lot of these well, questions when i saw it as we, as we learned on Instagram this week, you were a member of the high school academic team. So, I mean, this isn't, you know, let's not no, pretend. I swear, that. I swear to God. I swear to God. Bill was blown away by the fact that I did some smart kid things in my life. I, you Because you lead us to believe that you were just like the stoner hipster kid uh, who, who skipped class all the time and, and, you know, didn't do nerd stuff. Turns out you did nerd stuff. Oh, I did a ton of nerd stuff. I am a nerd, but I was never a good student. <laughs> I stand by that. And, ask my, that is, ask my, that ask my bosses. I'm not a good that student. There's a difference than being on the academic team. We, on the on our academic team, and yes, of course, I was on the academic team. Um, we did have a couple of people who were very smart and and didn't you know apply that smartness to class all the time, but were very smart in that kind of setting. Practical application of knowledge is probably my strong suit. <laughs> the classroom is not common um, sense. All right, we're going to move on from the AAC. I love you, AAC. We'll talk soon. I miss you already. Bill, you you dropped you dropped the BYU bomb on us, and I, I'm sure Jason Kirk, our, our editor, knew it, but I don't think you let our social team know. You didn't let me know. You have to prepare a website for when you write about BYU. You didn't do that. You just you just rolled the preview out. 
like a like a grenade of emotional poop that you didn't tell anybody was about to go off. Well, I, I don't know what you're complaining about because BYU fans just like it just like gets absorbed immediately. Like I, I immediately got you know the t- the customary radio invites. I've done a decent amount of like Salt Lake radio through the years, and I've, I, those have come through already. Gotten all the interaction on Twitter already. Uh, they're ready. They're ready at all times, whether they knew the preview was coming up or not. They were ready, and they have pounced. They are the. I mean, they they are a Nebraska style fan base in that regard. Uh, they're ready at all times to talk about their team, and 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 that certainly has been the case so far today. Yeah, they're but a but, really interesting team to talk about. Yeah, but what have we learned? What have really we learned good. about teams that are always ready to talk about the giant existential state of their program, Bill? Well, and, and I mean, in this case, we're not talking existential. Well, I mean, we Double are a little bit talking. Short. No, absolutely no. See, to me, and without having even seen the copy of the preview yet, I've got a pretty good idea what the story beats are. Um, this is actually maybe the first year where I didn't focus like half the intro on like the existential life as an independent thing. Now there's something more immediate to talk about, which was how the heck did last year happen and are they going to rebound from it? Yeah, but that so doesn't this make was them feel more, any better. <laughs> well, no, but it makes them an interesting team to talk about because they do. This is, you know, this can be really good for a program. I'll say that. Like the what happened to them last year could be a big, the beginning of the end. Sataki could be out in a year. But we could also, like, sometimes in your second year, you're carrying things forward. We were just talking about, like, continuing from what you inherited from the previous guy. And Sataki, for the most part, has been, you know, utilizing uh, the recruits that that Bronco Mendenhall had set up for him. Because among other things, even if you sign a pretty good recruiting class, and Sataki really didn't this last year, but you're going to lose half of those guys to a mission. So you're not going to get them back for two years. So right. half, the, half the freshmen on this year's team signed, like, two, three years ago. Um, so it, it's always a kind of a weird thing, but, um, because things fell apart so dramatically last year, offensively, specifically, um, it did feel like when he got hired, he was trying to build a bridge between like, yeah, there's some of my personality here and the defense is going to take on my personality, but the offense, I don't really know what I want to do yet. So I'm going to bring in the, the favorite son. I'm going to bring in Ty Detmer to, to lead the way, even though he's only, he's a high school coach. He hasn't ever been a college offensive coordinator. Um, hey, and so quick, we kind of, it was like, work? It, I, when, when I, I immediately just thought of, was, uh, of, um, I mean, I know Heupel's a successful coach now, like he's a head coach yeah. at UCF, uh, and he did really, he did a really good job in Missouri, but like, he was fine at OU. It, that's what fine. I'm saying. Like, it, does it ever work when you bring that guy back? Yeah. Didn't I mean, Larry I, I Bird think, coach the Celtics for a while probably. or the Pacers. No, I don't I, know. I, the problem wasn't necessarily, well, the problems do come up when you give the favorite son bonus points. And in this case, like if Ty Detmer wasn't Ty Detmer, he wouldn't have had any hope whatsoever of landing a major offensive coordinator. Right, and job. that's what I'm talking about. Right. And so like that, that's more, less like Josh Heupel, more like Kim Anderson, the, the Missouri coach hired before Conzo Martin, where like he was a D2 coach, but because he was a Norm Stewart guy and played for Norm Stewart, he got bonus points and it was a complete and total disaster. So, um, so yeah, so, but, but yeah, I was shaky. If you go back and read my BYU preview from two years ago, I don't remember specifically what I said, but it was basically me, me being as polite as possible about saying, yeah, I mean, you never know, but this hire is confusing to me. Um, and, and so he hands the, the offense over to Detmer. They lose a bunch in their receiving core last year. Um, 
Tanner Mangum just bombs two years ago under Mendenhall. He threw for like 3,400 yards last year. It was like 1500. And then he ruptured his Achilles at the beginning of November. Um, it was just a bad situation all the way around. And uh, now you get a fresh start. So at this point with, with uh, Sataki, he doesn't need to appease anybody in the past. He can do the program. He can set up the program the way he wants to. He brought in obviously some new blood offensively. Um, and now he gets to establish the program he wants on his terms. It, it might not be enough. Uh, it, the schedule is really tricky this year um, mm-hmm. in that the, getting to six and six, getting back to a bowl is certainly conceivable, but they've got five really tough road games. Um, and, and that's going to make like a, a, a huge rebound pretty much impossible. It could make like they, they play at Washington and at Wisconsin in September. They play at Boise State and at Utah in November. They start the season at Arizona, which I mean, Arizona is starting you know, fresh as well. So maybe you can handle that one. But that still means four kind of baked in losses. And you have to figure out then how to basically win every winnable game to get to six or seven wins or whatever. And that's a really tricky uh road to 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 hoe especially when you've got like utah state you got northern illinois um newly resurgent power new mexico state california uh the home slate is not easy either and and so you basically have to win all these toss-up games it's going to be pretty tricky i just my thing with byu is that you can't talk about them without getting into the existential thing pretty fast except except i just did today i was impressed okay well yeah i mean i just at a certain point, oh, by the way, you want to, we sat here and talked about the exception of the rule when you're talking about how um, returning production is an issue. I think recruiting rankings in BYU is um, that's got to just play hell with the numbers. It does. I, I I've been trying to like my perfect world scenario is basically looking at like recruiting rankings as a function of the two deep. Um, but I haven't figured out anything there that, that does anything good at all. But, but yeah, you're basically, you're looking at two year recruiting rankings. Well, half of those recruits are from that period. And then the other half of your recent recruits are from four years ago. It, it makes it very tricky. Now, until this year, the rankings didn't really change all that much. So it was just kind of a stabilizing thing. Anyway, they were what they were. Um, this year they fell off a little bit, which is kind of what happens when you lose. Um, and so that made it a little different, but anyway, they're projected 76th. I would project something like I would bump that up to about 60th or so. I do think their offense will rebound a decent amount just because it was kind of artificially low last year. But, uh, even with a number 60 team, you might be looking at six and six or seven and five at best. Not good enough. They're going to freak out. Yeah. <laughs> They, they will quite possibly freak out, yeah. No, I mean, this is the exact situation Mendenhall was in. It's not it's not fair at all to judge Sataki for at least another two to three years. But I'm just, again, it's the definition of insanity here. I don't, and, and we're going to get questions from BYU fans. I'm not trying to be mean or disparaging or anything like that. Um, I just, I don't know what you do. We've already talked, well, we, we talked about it recently on the Mountain West show about, about do they just go back? Go back. Oh, to the Mountain West. Yeah, um, they're not getting in the Big. 12. No one's getting in the Big Twelve right now. No, and I, I still. I mean, it's a hard job. It's hard to schedule, but it's not impossible. And the problem isn't necessarily that Sataki. It's not the same to me. It's not like doing the same thing over and over again at all. Like this, Sataki is not Mendenhall. He's trying to do something. He's trying to do something different. The problem for them, at the end of the day, is that their pool of available head coaching talent uh, is tiny. My, uh, argue, like, well, I, I quoted, my argument is not that Sataki is Mendenhall. My argument is that BYU is BYU is BYU. 
I don't think the head coach is the issue here. They're never going to not be BYU. But they want to be something that isn't BYU, which is they want to well, be, no, be BYU in the eight. Well, they, they, they want to be BYU in the Power Five going 10-2 and two and competing for national titles, and BYU in 2018 cannot do that. No, so they're gonna so they're gonna be independent and compete for national titles and go ten and two every year or whatever. That's what, I mean, that's that's I what guess. they want to do. Yeah, but I, you know, I it, it is a very like to me it comes down to just the the pure fact that they've got a they've obviously got a very healthy fan base. They do have the ability to recruit at a solid enough level that they can. You know, then with good development and blah, 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 they can put really good teams on the field. They've had a, a good defense for most of the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but you just can't, there's still not a lot. I think what Sataki has proven so far is that there's not a lot of margin for error. And, and Mendenhall towed that line better than I think a lot of people thought he was at the time. And now we're seeing that Mendenhall was a pretty good coach. He got Virginia to a bowl in his second year there. He, and, and uh, you know, Sataki comes in, makes basically one bad hire. Uh, a very, very, very bad hire, but one bad hire uh, and everything falls apart on them. So um, it's just, yeah, it's a tough job. I will say though, like I do like the the coordinator he hired. Um, it's, it's, we don't know how he's going to do. Um, well, I mean, he, he hasn't ever um, called plays, so we don't know that aspect, but he brought in Jeff Grimes, who was uh, previously, uh, offensive line coach at BYU during the the John Beck passing for 4,000 yards a season days back in the, the mid-aughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, he was um, Gene Chizik's O-line coach at Auburn. He was uh, both Les Miles and Ed Ogeron's uh, offensive line coach at LSU. Um, he's got... He seems to have kind of Sataki's a very physical mentality kind of guy on the defensive side of the ball. And he seems to have now found a guy who can kind of create that defensive mentality on the offensive side of the ball. Um, I, uh, so, so, I mean, he hasn't been, he has no more offensive coordinator experience than Detmer did, but I think his college experience, uh, is going to help him a lot here. And I think he's got the pieces to improve that offense. And and that's not saying much because they were horrendous last year. So you don't have to do much to improve. Bill, but. you gotta love a dovetail at that Gambrel guy. Hashtag ask PAPN for your questions. Can we talk about the Indies yet? In 2028, BYU, I'm sorry, in 2028, will BYU or Liberty be a better program? It's BYU. It seems BYU has the brand awareness and history, but LU, that's weird, LU's location will be much easier to recruit talent. Is each equally affected by their off the field issues? Or is one affected more? Um, the best way to look at this is often the way that we look at BYU in comparison to Notre Dame, in which when you're dealing with uh, an arcane structure, religious institution, um, it's it always seems to be frustrating to deal with the restrictions that are self-imposed because of the religious school element. However, the only thing worse is being a younger uh, a younger, lesser known religious school. And so when you compare Notre Dame to BYU, Notre Dame has the advantage. And then when you compare BYU to Liberty, I think Liberty is at a, a much more of a disadvantage. Um, not because, um, is Liberty actually, Liberty is not actually, is it a Southern, is it affiliated with the Southern Baptist union? I'm going to screw that up. Um, I'm going to double check that as we talk about it's fall, it's fall. Well, it's, it's whatever fall. Well, was. right. Um, but I'm not saying that let's just say Baptists, uh, a Baptist university is a is in a better or worse place to recruit football and players and coaches than than uh, than the LDS church. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that BYU does have a history, 
Bill just talked about the 1980s. We know who Ty Detmer is, right? Um, that's that's the difference there. However, um, I think Liberty seems to be just just determined to create a football identity. And if you have enough money, those things usually seem to sort themselves out. So I think Liberty will be a better program in that they will probably be, probably have a higher profile and be attracting a higher level of talent. I don't know what that talent will be relative to. I don't know what level it'll be on in 2028, but um, I don't think that they will have the power that BYU does, even though every time we talk about BYU, it's always the absence of the power that they have. <laughs> no, I mean, Liberty is BYU in like 1962 right now in terms of football. So, um, I mean, if they hire their Lavelle Edwards, I don't think that's Turner Gill. Turner Gill's solid. Uh, but if he leaves and the next guy to hire is amazing, then sure, they could do great. But that's on average, that's probably not going to happen. So, um, yeah, I think Liberty is just. Uh, they have a, a, so much more to prove than BYU. BYU is just disappointed with four and nine. Liberty's probably going to go four and eight this year and be pretty excited about it. So there's a long way to go, and I don't think ten years is going to change all that much in that regard. Um, and I, I, I know he didn't mean to to phrase it like this, uh, but the quote unquote off the field issues. Um, BYU's issues are that, I mean, obviously they've got a pretty strict honor system, but their issues are that they don't play on Sundays. That's what's held them back in terms of conference bids and everything else. Um, right now, Liberty's quote unquote off the field issues, other than also having an honor code, they, they just hired free. They just, uh, I don't know if I want to go down this road. Um, they hired Ian McCaw as their, as their athletic director. That's, uh, if if we're really leaning on the word issues here, they're in a situation right now where they you know they basically tried to buy their way into Conference USA or Sun Belt. They I mean and they were off putting a lot of money on the table, and when both Conference USA and Sun Belt turned them down, uh, Jerry Falwell screamed religious intolerance, um, which if I am the uh, if I'm Conference USA or Sunbelt in, in the year 2017, or I guess this would have been like 2016, 17. Um, I, I don't think it's religious intolerance so much as looking at the situation. Number one, I mean, honor code and all that it is a very, 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 very conservative university. There's no question about that. But they just basically climbed to the mountaintop and announced that they don't care about their own reputation. They hired Baylor's athletic director like six months after he resigned from Baylor in disgrace. And, 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 and more than that, they didn't, you know, this would have been an opportunity to basically say, look, we, we have our own values. We, we, you know, we enforce our, our strict uh, code on all, all of our students. We feel very comfortable that the issues that came up at Baylor aren't going to come up here and uh, that McCaw will have the, there will be oversight on the athletic department in such a way that we, we are comfortable with, with being in control of the things that went poorly at Baylor. He could have said that he could have said, you know, at that point, then this is a chance for redemption. McCaw can run an athletic office. This Turner Gill is not our priles. He could have gone down this road and kind of at least tried to justify it. I would have still kind of felt gross about the hire, but he could have justified it. Instead, he got mad at being questioned about it. And if you read McCaw's um, 
bio, which I, I just put in small, I just put it on like asterisk, uh, italicized small font. Like it basically just talks about Baylor's athletics, not only Baylor's athletic success, but Baylor's administrative success. Well, before, and, and, before you continue to be so verklempt, um, Oh, I'm verklempt. I was one of the people who wrote about that success, went down there and wrote a fawning yeah. piece and interviewed McCall yeah. for about an hour and a half one day. So, I mean, I will say this, let's, Let's put it in a vacuum, even though we don't want to. Ian McCall got that job because he was well-connected in the Christian community because um, the powers that be at Baylor are kissing cousins to the powers that be at Liberty. And I'm not talking about sports. Um, It made a ton of sense for them at the time because they are looking at things in a vacuum. The amount of money that they raised in Waco for athletics alone was stupid. It was crazy. It was stupid on Texas terms, the amount of money that they were put that they put together to make Baylor a power uh, in athletics, period, not just football. So that's why it happened. He was a massively successful on the field athletic director. He was a a massively, you got to understand, though, he was a massively successful athletic director off the field because what they consider to be off the field and what you and I consider to be off the field are two very different things. Liberty didn't even really need to stump for him. They didn't even really need to justify the hire. Okay. In other words, like let's say a coach comes out and or a, a university comes out in the, uh, the next cycle and hires uh, Hugh freeze. Okay. Or let's say a power five, let's say Kendall blows it up at Houston. Like we talked about last week and he's in line for an OC job at a major top 10 power, right? Like Clemson or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Then, oh, Clemson fans just got mad, but go ahead. Why? Maybe Jeff Scott gets another job. I mean, ch- chill. Um, <laughs> I, don't know. I love Clemson. Uh, I mean, I don't love Clemson, but I, I like what they do in terms of football stuff. Um, anyway, anyway. Liberty didn't even need to do what, what you would have to do in that situation to be like, oh, you know, Hugh Freeze has this baggage, this NCAA thing, or Kendall Bryles, this, this, and this, you know, sexual assault. History. Liberty just said, yeah, we're hiring him. Look how much money he raised. So he was yep. successful in the coaches he hired. He was successful in the money that he raised. He was successful in the facilities that he built. The whole point of the story that I wrote was that Ian McCall, I look back on that story now, and we wanted to talk about the two coaches that hated hated each other's guts so much, Riles and Patterson. They really <laughs> and the and the rivalry and all the weirdness that goes on with TCU being a Methodist institute and the fact that Baylor was once Baylor was once on next to TCU's campus and history and all this jazz and religious blah, blah, blah. And basically all where all the white rich kids go and on that side of Texas, what we were, I should have been writing about now, which may have not been an interesting sell was the fact that the, these two people, these two athletic directors, Christo Conte and Ian McCall were fantastic fundraisers and they were tapping into a, they were tapping into Texans, just people from Texas's general desire to win at football, whatever their affiliation might be, and turning TCU and Baylor into mini Texases, mini Ohio states. I mean, if you think I'm joking when I make those comparisons, go to those campuses and look at the facilities that were built in the last 15 years. TCU is unbelievable. And guess where Christel Conte is now, Bill? He's the yeah. athletic director at Texas. Um, all that being said, while you were on your rant, Liberty University was founded in 1971. I did a little <laughs> research. Um, 
that's Liberty University's problem. That's Liberty University's problem probably first and foremost is that it takes a long time to build these powers up. In fact, I don't have the answer to this, but I would love to know that the, the, the just for trivia's sake of, of the perennial college football powers, and we can even throw in like the Boise States of the world because I know that they were formerly a JUCO within the last 30, 40 years, I think. Maybe 40 years ago they were junior college. Four, uh, 50, okay. 50 now, yeah. Who is the youngest? You know, what? Who, who among those powers and the, the top fifty football college football programs is the youngest as a university? Because that I think you'd be alarmed. A lot of those, you know, they're old or they're or they're land grant institutions. They're they're not IVs. They don't have the kind of history and the trappings of of institutions we feel like to be higher academic pursuits. But most of them have been around a long time. You know. I mean, the college, the university I went to was just a public university in a state that is insanely poor and underdeveloped. But I mean, the university was founded a long, long time ago and was therefore, when football was invented, able to brand that early. So Liberty was founded 10 years before I was born. That's its problem. Um, right. But I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think we're talking about different problems. To me, the, the issue well, yeah, no, 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 hang on. is that couldn't even get into conference. I'm not USA. saying there's a... I don't want to. I don't want to mince this. Like you're talking about systemic issues in college football and the fact that Liberty openly embraced somebody who oversaw one of the most well, heinous no, no, no. crimes in college football history. Well, no, and I'm just saying, I'm like, hey, you need better PR. I'm talking about like BYU's issue right now is they can't get into a P5. Liberty's issue right now is they can't get in a Conference USA. And so that's how far apart of those that's issues. That's the difference. Though. I mean, pretty damn far, I think. I think. Like, BYU could, if they wanted to take their hat off, put it in their, you know, be very genuinely uh, regretful, they could ask back into Mountain West and get back into Mountain West. Okay. And and Liberty can't get into the Sun Belt. Why can't Liberty get into the Sun Belt? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask the Sun Belt and Conference USA, but what? But the point I was very in a very circular manner trying to make was, you know, while Falwell was was decrying religious intolerance and them getting turned down, I think com- combine the fact that they've only been pretty good at football. Like they had a couple good years back in like what fourteen or thirteen, fourteen. Now they've been six and five three straight years, so they're they're not a sure thing. Plus it's kind of gross right now. Like the, the first like three or four responses I got on Twitter yesterday after I posted my Liberty preview, which I was other than mentioning McCaw's very gross bio, I was very, very even handed to the point where Turner Gill's daughter, uh, post uh, tweeted it out saying it was a very fair preview. So I was, I was happy with being kind of balanced in that regard. Um, but like the first two or three responses were all, Oh, they suck. I hope they go in 12. Like there's a, a, revol- a certain built-in revulsion because of the grossness, because of Ian McCaw, because well, probably because of Falwell too. Um, and so, if you're a, if you're the Conference USA or Sun Belt, and you're looking at a situation, and I'm sure them not being a sure thing was part of it, but the fact that they're not a sure thing, and then you might have to deal with some crap down the line, like that was probably to me a reason why I would pro- be like leaning. D- towards a no vote in that regard. Obviously, uh, Ian McCall would never get a job at BYU because BYU's pa- power positions are filled by people of that faith, okay? Right. But don't think for a second the same thing. First off, the same thing has happened at BYU that happened to Baylor, okay? They had a sexual assault scandal. It's one of the reasons Bronco Mendenhall ended up the coach eventually, okay? This culture that persists at private, private religious institutions 
I'm not saying religion. I'm not saying private colleges breed this. There's private colleges that are as secular and atheist as they come dotted all along the Northeast. I am saying that when you, when you add in a private institution that's controlled by, by, by a small group of people that are highly influential, when you throw in religious dogma, and then when you aspire to do something that's really broad and secular and almost, almost certainly in football dictates that you bring in people from different cultures to achieve that success – this problem is going to happen. And that's what happened at Baylor. And that's what happened at BYU. And it's not the crime. And it's not, oh, we brought in the thugs. It's that we overextended ourselves in evaluation to achieve success on the field. And then when there were issues that became systemic, we covered them up because that's right. that's our first reflex in these right. situations. So what I'm getting at when you talk about, look, there is a disdain for liberty in the in Conference USA and Sun Belt amongst the membership, amongst people at the executive level. There are they don't want to touch it because we've talked about this. They don't have to. Why take on that burden and why deal with right. that problem? When right. Trump runs for re-election, whether you like Trump or not, Trump will go back to liberty. And when that base of people and and, and the Falwell adherents embrace trump again people are going to look at liberty and then the next thing they're going to look at liberty in is the context of what conference they're in it's not as strong as necessarily we, we do this a lot when like michigan's you know michigan state's been in a heap and help in trouble right um the big 10 membership feels that when you see other fans yelling about what's going on with the larry nasser case and just the sexual assaults that that occurred in in football and basketball Big Ten fans are the. What's the first reaction, Bill? It's always kick them out of the league, right? <laughs> right, right. Baylor sexual assault, kick them out of the league. Ole Miss, uh, Ole Miss is cheating, kick them out of the league. I mean, that one I kind of make a fart noise about, not because I'm an alumnus, but because they're every single program in the world is cheating their ass off down here. Right. Um, Ole Miss wasn't Larry Nasser. Yes. Yes. Ole Miss wasn't cheating well enough. Now that is a valid criticism. Um, Liberty is a small version of BYU. Maybe the LDS fans are going to flip out when I say that. If you're going to be a religious institution and you are not Notre Dame, and I don't say this because I married a Catholic or because I go to Catholic church, I'm saying this because the success Notre Dame had happened a long time ago. They continue to have success. They got grandfathered in, basically. That's just that's the best explanation. Had there been more Mormons than Catholics back in the 20s, Maybe maybe we're talking about BYU today the way we're talking about Notre Dame. But if you're not Notre Dame and you're a religious institution and you're going to place restrictions on on all of these different things, campus life, culture, you can't watch an R-rated film if you go to Liberty on campus. Hmm. How in the world are you going to bring in – like it, it just I, – I honestly think the service academies have a better shot with some of these guys. So I didn't want to derail the podcast, but – the Liberty oh, thing, yeah. I mean, the Liberty thing, yes, it does mirror BYU in a lot of situations. And and I would go, I, I, it's not an argument I want to get into, and it's, I, I'm really not trying to demean any, any faith-based institution for, have, for being a faith-based institution. But I am going to point out someone as someone of the Christian faith every time, these things are not, there's not a lot of symmetry here sometimes when you are being a very, very strong conservative faith-based institution, be it the Church of Latter-day Saints, be it, by the way, the affiliation, it's essentially was just started as a Baptist Bible college. Uh, Liberty was in 71. It was the Lynchburg, uh, Lynchburg Bible college. And so like, I guess it's just the Baptist church. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's the same structure as like the Southern Baptist consortium that's based here in Nashville. I don't know, 
But the point is, if you're going to run, if you're going to run a football program out of that extended as an extension of a church, you're going to run into these problems all the time. Notre Dame deals with it. Notre Dame deals with it all the time. To me, there is still like, I mean, yeah, the, the Trump Liberty connection, that's obviously going to be a thing to a lot of people, probably uh, myself included to whatever degree. Uh, although I didn't need Trump, I already had the word Falwell involved. So I already had my opinion, just my own personal opinion in that regard. But I think the, I do think there's something to acknowledging like BYU had to, back last year, I think <clears throat> they changed their policy for handling sexual assault. Um, you know, they, I, I think in the, in the past, it was kind of like the honor code was to end up kind of flipping or getting flipped around on them. And it was kind of a weird situation, but they still uh, changed their policy for handling it. And so I just, I think there is something extra like with all, everything else that goes on, um, with with you know your religion of choice that's all you know that's a completely different subject to me the fact that they brought in McCaw and then basically said he's great he's great he's awesome but what about he's awesome perfect fit but you know there was this he's great can't imagine a better fit for this universe like acknowledge it acknowledge what you're taking on and and explain why it's okay but when you don't do that I think that whatever if there's any sympathy left after all the other cultural differences and all that, I think it goes away immediately when, when you go out of your way, not to acknowledge the bad side of McCall. McCall's a hell of a fundraiser and th athletically, they're probably going to do great things because of him being aboard, but acknowledge the elephant in the room. So you're and, saying, uh, so what you're saying is that you think BYU is more progressive as a culture than Liberty. <laughs> I, I think, uh, begrudgingly, but I think they have, but no, in this case, I'm not even talking like I athletic speaking specifically about the athletic department. Um, they have been at least slightly more progressive by simply acknowledging that there's something to be changed and trying to figure out how to change it. And, and my response to that is I think BYU is more progressive. I agree with you, but, but my response is, do you know why? My response is because they've been around the block longer and they've suffered the same <laughs> they've suffered the same problems that trust me liberty is going to suffer. They've learned from it and they've 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 at least grayed out part of those lines to try and be more progressive in areas so that they can be I think I think that they they know they need to be a little bit more or <laughs> a lot more palatable than liberty to be embraced in 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 sports circles because they they so desire that success the way Notre Dame has. And so yeah, I just think, I think it's more of a maturation process. Inherently, I think it's the same function. Please, please, please don't at me with a dissection of religious doctrine. And, and I'm not trying to get into that part of it. I know there's differences between the church of Latter-day Saints and, and the Baptist church, but we're not talking about faith. We're talking about literally it's look, man, it doesn't make sense is what we're trying to get at. I think here, and you're going to run into these really, really, really weird moments. And I'm trying to use really nice terminology, but you're going to run into really <laughs> weird moments when you're a faith based, faith based institution adhering to doctrine again, being yeah. nice and trying to compete in modern athletics, period, full stop. We got to get off this subject. 
Uh, I will finalize it by just saying I do think Turner Gill's a pretty decent coach. Um, Turner Gill's a great and, coach. And they have they had a pretty good offense last year. They're probably going to be able to win at least four or five games this year. And uh, aside from the nightmare that is scheduling moving forward, uh, having to play New Mexico State twice a year because you didn't get into a conference and you have to schedule 12 games now, um, they're going to be at least okay. Um, I can't predict anything beyond okay, but leaving all the other uh, topics off the, I mean, they've invested in their athletics again, Macaw's a hell of a fundraiser. Um, they have invested in athletics. Uh, Gil already makes like a comparable Mac level salary. Um, yeah. and, and all that, like they're going to be all right. They're, they're not going to be amazing. They're going to be all right. And there you go. Now we trans. Now we transition. Now fifty minutes in. Let's transition to questions. Uh, the only thing I can say about Turner Gill is that I've asked before because it's kind of it, it sort of ends up being a kind of like oh where'd that guy go type of moment amongst coaches, and I've asked that two or three times to people, and I'd be like Turner, like oh man, is he still at Liberty? And the response I always get when I when I say that is they're like he loves it there. He love and and what they mean by that specific is I was like what he loves the culture or he goes they like no he loves the anonymity. The size, the focus, all that stuff, which I mean, you know, for a man whose career success kind of begins and ends at the University of Buffalo, it makes sense. I mean, uh, and let's let's not be honest or let's be honest. Um, best Kansas coach of the last 10 years. Boy, what a what an honor. What God, can we get that on a T-shirt? Uh, Bill, <laughs> the good news is this. While we were sitting here going through all kinds of potential landmines, our friend Gregory, Gregory Lane Nichols actually hit up the Ask PAPN Hashtag in the middle of the recording. He's retweeting. Um, he's retweeting oh, a missive from our buddy Brett Sources McMurphy, who's got a source. Who, by the way, congrats to Brett. I think he got a job. I don't know where. Stadium. Um, what uh, with stadium? Awesome. Congrats yeah. to the stash. Um, one of the just nicest outward established media type guys. When I came on as a national guy, it was always really good to me. Um, Alabama. This is. So Greg makes a joke, but I'm just going to read this through for a second because it's a good discussion topic. Alabama adds a 20, uh, 2022 home game with Utah State. Bama will play the Aggies, pay the Aggies $1.91 million, the third highest amount ever for a visiting team. Florida paid Colorado State $2 million, but as, as Brett notes, that was part of the, the McElwain buyout. So to me, that doesn't count because yeah. that's not the going market rate. And then Auburn paid Tulane. Ready for this, Bill? $1.937 million for a 2019 game. Greg's question, Ask PAPN, is how many points will Tulane beat Auburn by in 2019? <laughs> um, damn. What's going on here, guys? Are we just going to see this? Is this just a slow creep? Is it going to cap? Yeah. This is I, crazy. $2 million to, to play Tulane? Also, if you're Auburn, this is a legit question, Bill, before you finish your thought. Auburn, I know Auburn plays at LSU every other year, like everyone else in the West does, plus Florida. But why not go to why not go to Tulane and say, yeah. hey guys, let's do it, let's do a two for one. And rather than us pay you out for the single game, you guys come here twice. We'll work a smaller fee in for those games, and then we will come and play in New Orleans. And I know everyone's like, well, why, why would you do that? Because one, everybody, yeah, because if you're in Auburn, you're, you're eventually going to recruit New Orleans. Two, it's New Orleans. Your fan base doesn't have to drive far. They get to make a weekend out of it. Tulane is a pretty nice stadium uptown now. Yeah. If you're going to fill it out and create a home game anyway, it's a mini bowl. Damn, y'all. $2 million? I, this is one of those things where I really don't 
I don't see the the end game here entirely. Like, I mean, I get the general purpose. And I think, by the way, when we talk about how, you know, the Power Five is going to separate itself one day, it's going to create a whole new subdivision and all that. Um, and then when others point out, like, oh, they're still going to need to win games because congratulations for playing in a, a much more amazing schedule and going four and eight now. Um, this does remind you at least of the value of making sure you've got winnable home games on the schedule. Um, is that a, is, is Tulane a winnable home game? I mean, it will always be a winnable home game. It's going to be less winnable in 2019 than in most years, but Auburn's still going to be just, I mean, they're, they're going to be a, a healthy favorite in that game. Um, but, but it's no lock. I mean, you're, no, you're it's not, absolutely you're not, not bringing in the, you're not bringing in the corpse of a, of a bottom tier Sunbelt team. And I mean, they almost lost to ULM a couple of years ago. So, I mean, anybody, true? nothing's a lock. War Dame Hawks. Go Warhawks. Um, I, Two million dollars. It is very strange. I mean, and, and I, this is, I guess you could say this is kind of the circle of life that I always talk about when I say, you know, don't get rid of the FCS games because the FCS teams need that budget. Uh, this is a way of, of, of having that budget cycle down to the, the G5, who then can pay those FCS teams, who then can pay those Division two teams or whatever. Yeah, but, but Bill, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now before I pull it up at FBSschedules.com, who is in no way affiliated with SB Nation, but damn, <laughs> I spend a lot of time on your fine, fine website. Um, I'm going to tell you right now before I look it up, there's probably already an FCS team scheduled for 2022 in Alabama schedule. I'm sure it's on the, it's on the, what's the week every Ohio state fan oh, sure. complains about the, um, so, so con Saturday. Yeah. Like, so what I'm saying is scheduling winnable games. I hear you having seven, seven home games for revenue. I understand that Alabama's a machine. I wrote a story about that. Like, uh, actually it says tv it says tba on 2022 and they and fb come on fbs schedules this was just announced that's not up on your website yet um Jeez. auburn's is so they play oregon in arlington to start 2019 then they then they yeah. get three home games Tulane, kent state samford uh so samford being so on saturday but but as an example alabama's non-conference schedule this year uh they're where are they going orlando oh wow that's fun they're in orlando for uh for labor day weekend against louisville um Ooh. man with, with Lamar, that would be fun. Um, Arkansas, so, so here's the other three. Arkansas State, ULL, and Citadel. 2019, Duke in Atlanta. Why did you do that, Duke? Uh, New Mexico State, Southern Miss, Western Carolina. So there's an FCS team there every time. It looks like they're still filling the others out. They do have Mercer scheduled for 2021. So my point stands, they always have that yeah. FCS game. And by the and way, Citadel and Western Carolina are both right there on the, the SoCon Challenge spot. Right. Citadel, Western Carolina, Mercer, those are going to, they're all going to make like a million dollars too. Um, maybe more. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the going rate there is now. Um, but no, now you're paying to make sure you get seven home games and you still get a fun in Alabama's case, neutral site, uh, non-con game, but Hey, they're playing Notre Dame at Notre Dame in 2028. Um, I'm fine with that. No, I, I, I'm not. I love that I'm game. Not, I hate that it's freaking 10 years away, but regardless, oh, like, I mean, that that's just, honestly, I think that has a hell of a lot more to do with Notre Dame than it does, oh, with, it does. with Alabama. I mean, um, we see, we're looking at Alabama's schedule here. They've got nothing planned for like 22, tw- yeah. for, from 22 through 27. So I'm sure that was a Notre Dame thing. No, uh, I, don't, also, I don't want to be curmudgeon for curmudgeon's sake on the show. We, we're not like we, we have a really, really weird love hate relationship with what happens on Labor Day weekend. I hate the corporate influence. I hate the NFL stadiums, but, damn 
you got to love the football, right? And by the way, for all the people who ask us about like, is, is like Alabama, Notre Dame, is that, does that signal in an end to the neutral site pro stadium games? No, uh, Alabama God, wish, three scheduled three scheduled in the next four years. And they'll probably end up with one in 2020 as well. So no, um, that's not going away, but it's the good. best excuse I get from athletic directors and they never want to talk about like, it's, it's always like, Hey, I just want to ask you this. Like you get done with the interview on the phone. You're like, Hey, I'm just curious off the record. And they get like, you can literally just hear them like loosening the tie and being like, okay, I can actually talk like a human being and not a robot parrot for a giant conglomerate. Uh, I'll be like, hey, uh, I mean, why not like you and this other school and you guys are going to Dallas or, you know, Orlando or whatever? Why not do a one on one? They always, always talk about how impossible that is to schedule. Yeah. You know, we got to go to their place and then we got to find a We got to find a reasonable amount of time for, you know, them to come to our place. If Notre Dame and Alabama, Notre Dame, incredibly finicky scheduling as an independent, they operate a space that is unique to them. Right. Yep. Literally no one else. I mean, when you talk about Notre Dame scheduling, that is that is bespoke. Right. <laughs> uh, if they can pull it off and Alabama is receptive to that, then and Alabama can do it. Anybody can do it. I'm sorry. Anybody can do it. Yeah. Notre Dame already has seven of its games lined up for 2028. And that doesn't include like Navy who we know they'll schedule as well. So they have, they have five, they have yeah five games lined up so far for 2036. Now this all, all I can, all I want to, this is, this become, has become one of my little pet causes as well. We need a scheduling committee to just divvy out the schedules for all the teams at this yeah. point. Um, that's the, you know, cause this is, it's absolutely absurd that hooray, Alabama, Notre Dame in 10 and, and 11 years, hooray, Nebraska, Oklahoma in like 2052 or something. To um, be fair, the 20, everything after that Alabama series, it's listed. Is that's just, yeah. That's just their contract. That's just the contractual agreement of rotation on schools which, for the which, ACC. By the way, like they don't, I don't know what looking at this, I don't know why they it's 2028 because it does look like they have open spots in 26, 27, 22. Um, so that was uh, I mean, I, I can tell, I can tell you with some, a, a decent level of confidence it's because they're in negotiations with, um, so starting in like, man, I, I just want to pause real fast and reflect on the fact that I'm speaking positively about Notre Dame on multiple yeah, topics, multiple, multiple subjects. Um, I was going with it. You, so they're, they're basically booked up for the next five to six years. And then the gap between that and the, 28 29 is that you can all you can look at it and see i guarantee you this there's interest in like there's interest in a michigan type more traditional rivalry i think you hear this a lot from people that are notre dame fans people that have strong opinions about notre dame one way or the other is that that acc schedule is not very traditional and we we all know how the big t traditional word works in South Bend. My very educated guess is that they're trying to land some of their more traditional uh, top tier FBS opponents to fill in those gaps. And then I think they had a clear spot for both of those with the home and away with Alabama. That, yeah, that would be my, they do play Ohio state. Guess. So yeah. Um, yeah. They always say they are locked into Ohio state. Um, 2024. I mean, I know it's not the same. Don't and, laugh. But like, they have a and they have a they have a home and home with a and m are they just there's a home and home with arkansas in there too right yeah there's a, so yeah so it's 2025 they're at arkansas um i don't think we'd ever get anyone to really talk about this because it is such a topic of discussion for everyone in college football but we just very clearly defined alabama's schedule as like 
You go to you go do the Labor Day game. You know you're going to be in the SEC championship. You know you're going to get that one Saturday off against the FCS opponent, and then you're going to pay two Sun Belt teams to come in so your fan base can can spend money on season tickets, the parking, yep. and all that stuff. Right? Done. Done. How in the world do you determine that as Notre Dame? What a unique beast! Like at yeah. one point, like at what point? Obviously, I know that Notre Dame doesn't schedule FCS, and rarely do they schedule true doormat type teams. But um, how the hell do you do that? I mean, the worst team on Notre Dame's schedule this year is Ball State. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a question from a uh, at Bud Elliott 3. I don't know him. Um, he links to an SB Nation article, so I guess that's good. Um, Unfamiliar. Which of these seven are the most off in your opinion? He basically listed, uh, he put up a piece today about these, or yesterday about these seven teams with the top playoff odds at this point. BetOnline.com put out their make-miss playoff odds. Traffic uh, hustling a-hole. Ask a question on the podcast to promote his own article. (laughs) So... I, well, so they, they listed seven teams. I guess that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the top seven, just the seven that might get bet on. I'm not completely not sure, sure, but here they are. Um, tops is um, Alabama. Duh. Um, you have to lay $220 down to win $100 on Alabama making the playoff. Smart. Which is crazy. Uh, but Alabama's one. Clemson is, is two. Uh, Ohio State is three. Uh, Georgia is four. Michigan is five. That's what I'm kind of curious about in terms of, uh, okay. are, are they, are they, is this just a list of, of seven big teams or not? Michigan's going to be good by the way. Um, they are, they are, but that was, I agree. Kinda, uh, Penn state was next and Oklahoma brought up the rear at, at, at uh, plus three fifty slash minus 500. Um, so, out of those, I would say that Oklahoma feels low just because, they, I mean, their odds of, of doing really well are pretty good still. And that's a, you know, they're lower than Michigan. So that, that, that alone tells me that maybe that's a little weird. And it, and I thought I was high on Michigan until I saw this. Um, uh, you okay. I mean, I, th- I think that's pretty, that's, that's the thing. Oh, Michigan's too high and Oklahoma's too low. I don't really know what other, um, and the top three being Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. Duh. You know that's that's pretty much you know the, the, it's hard to get come to another conclusion this far in advance of the season. I mean, I'm always curious how Vegas determines this kind of stuff. Like, what information are they pulling from, and what do they weigh on heavier or lighter than we do? Um, yeah, I definitely would think that that Michigan's too high. Although somewhere buried in here, and I'll try and find it um, before we put out the solicitation for the fresh questions. Someone had asked if there's an underrated coordinator that we're not talking about right now. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not so much a coordinator, but like Ed Warner that was, uh, at, uh, Ohio state State. coming to Michigan. That intrigues me because if he, I, I mean, you don't, you don't fix an offensive line overnight, but and, and they had a bad offensive line. They had a very bad, porous offensive line. Um, and I just say that, like, I, I don't really put any extra stock into being on the field because I'm not an expert. But I did cover a Michigan game last year. It was the Penn State game, and they were porous on the offensive line. So I know a lot is made of the Shea Patterson thing this week with him getting eligible, but I think they've got to fix that offensive line first. And I, And Warner's a guy that could do that. So that could be one of the things that we aren't talking about now that we're really celebrating in the national media come November. 
if they are on track to go to a national title. Um, the other thing I would point out with this list is if we are to assume that this isn't just seven random teams, but like the top seven, yeah. uh, then what the, the, the assumption being now that Washington is at least eighth or lower, Washington is also too low. Um, I, do, I, I don't see solid. how you see Washington as a, as a, I don't see how you put Michigan above Washington in terms of the, the chance to get in the playoff. Right. And again, this, this really could just be the seven teams they knew that would draw bets. So that is true. Um, but but I, I, don't, I just, I don't want to necessarily conclude that, but yeah, Washington, they have to play Auburn obviously to start the season, which is cool. Um, but their path is obviously way clearer with fewer question marks than Michigan's is. So yeah, that's, that's my one thing about that list is, I don't want to necessarily assume that that means that they're eighth, but if it means that, then yeah, they're too low. Um, Bill, I am editing in real time. I don't want to go back and do that. I don't want to go back and do that. You guys got to be, Oh, um, this is a fast one. We can answer our friend Dak Moyer at Dakota or Dakota Moyer at Dak Moyer, uh, which state in the country has the most interesting coaches and storylines this season. Just talking about the actual state is what he's, what he's getting at. He says, Florida is the easiest, easiest answer here with Taggart at FSU. Mullen at Florida and Kiffin at FAU. I think that's definitely the answer, Bill. Um, I mean, yeah. you, Dak answered his own question and didn't even mention the fact Charlie yeah. Strong could have an amazing team. You have the defending national champions in Orlando, I might add, with a brand new head coach. That's right. Um, and not for nothing, Miami hasn't fallen off or disappeared. By the way, you still have Butch right. Davis, what he's going to do at FIU. I think that's all of them. Literally every every yeah, FBS no, program in Florida is worth watching this year for m- mainly for good reasons. By the way, shout out to Mark Rick this morning for his lovely quote um, about how he gets he a smile comes to his face when he looks around and sees how many dudes he's got on this year's Miami team. As somebody pointed out, uh, Miami plays BC this year, dudes. so battle of the dudes. Uh, Nick Jusslitz, uh, I've got a good go saving or for you. It's a pretty good save and or you guys are getting really, really good on your save and ors, by the way, ask uh, hashtag ask PAPN. Just start it with save and or um, ready. Yep. Higher total bill. Save national titles from this point on or sec West teams other than Alabama winning the sec championship from this point on. Yeah, it's, that's a good one. It really does depend on whether you think that Saban's got like one in him or three in him. Just keep in mind, um, there's pictures on the internet last week of Auburn getting their rings for winning the West. <laughs> um, I would say that the I, I still feel confident in Saban getting at least two more. And I feel confident in Georgia. <laughs> um obviously being a very tough power to overcome here. So I would say like I am tempted to say Saban in that scenario. I'm tempted to say Saban as well. Um, here's another fun one, real fast. Uh, Dimitri Rivanos. In a vacuum, all results being equal, would you rather have a coach who is an outspoken moralist or an absolute weirdo? I'm going to go with a weirdo every time because uh, my strong experience in this business is that outspoken moralists rarely are, and right. and right. those aren't mutually exclusive concepts and. I think a lot of the weirdos that I know in this industry are good-hearted people who who genuinely do right by the folks who oftentimes end up as victims in this business. Yes. 
Yeah, that's the only, and I, I feel bad because when you say outspoken moralist, I immediately think of Hugh Freeze tweeting. Um, well, no, I mean that's the, that's the that's, that's the case the point, study. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's uh, the case study. Absolutely. Give me the weirdo. Uh, here's one from Aaron Saunders at Saunders Sports. I, I like this question a lot because I, I already thought about the answer this morning when it popped up. Uh, Bill has cited Darnell, Limbo, and Hudspeth as good uh, G5 head coaches whose window closed to, the, to getting a P5 job because G5 success is tough to sustain. Who are some G5 head coaches who made the leap to P5 jobs too quickly, flamed out, and never recovered? Is there a common thread in their failure? So there's really – this is you can view this in a couple different ways. Now – the obvious answer here, the one that p- first popped into my mind, of course, was Daryl Hazel, um, who had one good year at Kent State, jumped mm-hmm. to Purdue and bombed. You could you could absolutely say he jumped too early, but can you ever jump too early if you get a chance at a P five job? Because if if Daryl Hazel stays at Kent State, if he basically says like I'm not I'm not ready to be a P five head coach yet, I need a little more seasoning. He's never going to come close to what he did that first year in 2012, or mm-hmm. not for, it wasn't his first year, but that that big year in 2012. He probably settles into a a, a, a routine of like five to eight wins a year at Kent State. Uh, now, I mean, granted, Turner Gill got the got the Kansas job after not after winning the MAC, but then after winning the MAC and then going five and seven the next year, so you could still get a P five job uh, after that peak has happened, but he sold high. That was the highest his stock was going to be. So the, you know, the fact that he got a P five job out of it, it's hard for me to say he jumped too early because he might not have gotten another one. I think that's the common thread. I still remember who was, uh, Kevin Wilson. Uh, but when I, when I asked him for a, a piece I was doing, like, why'd you take the Indiana job? It's a tricky job. Did you have any second thoughts? And he basically, first thing he said was, well, it was available. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the thing I come back to is, you don't these jobs don't come about all that yeah, often that, and you that, can't really uh, control that kind of attitude from Kevin Wilson is pretty indicative of his time at Indiana, <laughs> but I don't think it was a unique attitude. I think, uh, you know, the, wh- while, while guys might be hesitant to take really, 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 really hard jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you also just don't have that many opportunities. Barry Alvarez, when he took the Wisconsin job, like that, that was a very moribund program. And he's like, yeah, but it's big 10. So I think you take it when you get it. Yes, you do. Um, it's a skewed study because G five head coaches have become, I think higher. We've talked about this before. I stopped saying that so much. G five coaches eclipsed high profile coordinators a couple years ago for reasons that are maybe not entirely all related to Will Muschamp, but close. Um, so now it's hard to, if you average it out, the numbers are always going to tell you to take the job. Always, always, right? Hell, just, I mean, just look at what right. Rom's doing at Purdue versus what, what, um, I just lost his name. Is, is, yeah, Hazel did. Hazel. Is it, is it that fundamentally different a program? Did he come in and everyone was suddenly more receptive to his ideas or, you know, handing him a bigger check for facilities? Not necessarily. Maybe Hazel just wasn't as good a coach, period, and was going to flame out regardless of where he went. Um, the problem is, though, yeah, when and, you average all this out, possible. you have like Willie Taggart leaving USF or Oregon. Um, hell, I mean, honestly, I think in the long run, even you know, even Matt Rule going to Baylor, you have Tom Herman and Justin Fuente, and on and on and on and on and on. So, I'm trying to think of the worst case possible or a guy that's about to get fired that came over from a G5 job. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, I think statistically the numbers would tell you to take the job every time. Now it doesn't hurt to be choosy, but 
I mean, I guess this almost just feels like a roundabout question about PJ Fleck. And we don't know yet. We really don't know yet. He was the runner up to Taggart at Oregon. Um, I think had he gone to Oregon, he would have been a a, a great fit. I think they have a good coach right now in Mario Cristobal. Um, But how do you not leave that job after that season at Western Michigan? How do you go defeated at Western Michigan and go to the Cotton Bowl and and think to yourself, you know what? I'll have a I'll have as equal a platform or better at another point in my career to make the jump. Now, if PJ had a job in mind right. the way Herman had Texas in mind, because Herman's strongest strong the stronger finish for Herman was the second year, first year, first year, yes, first year, Florida State, first year, um, yeah. yeah, he was only in Houston for two years. I'm sorry. The first year was the stronger finish for Tom Herman, but he wanted that damn Texas job. It was it was obvious. I mean, he would have been I think he would have been happy and successful at LSU, but that's what he was eyeing and and you didn't see him jump. He could have he could have been one and done. I mean, hell, Taggart did it from P5 to P5. Um Right. You have to take the job. Unless it's an absolute absolute death trap. I mean, if it is the trap house of, if it is truly the trap house yeah. of P5 jobs into the cul-de-sac, under the railroad trestle, bars on the windows, <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I, the joke last year, if this question was asked of us last year, we would have said Purdue. And look what happened. And look what happened. So, yeah, take the job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you might, you might end up, it might not work out, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Have it might not it. work out. You, you'll have more money. Right. Uh, you will to, always, always have more money. We got time for a couple more, and I don't know which one I'm going to end with. But um, Ooh, let's okay. see. What's another one um, before the end? I can do a fast one. Okay. Um, at Tom, because I have experience with this, at Tom Wasselli, um, should colleges be allowing alcohol, sta- alcohol sales oh, yeah. in the stadium? That's right. Imagine being able to sell beer to over 100,000 fans at an SEC game. I know it's not apples to apples, but I love being able to grab a beer at a, at a uh, hash or at Go Bearcats game. He's talking about Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, I have not drank at Cincinnati at Nippert, but I, for one, I love Nippert. It's one of my top 10 stadiums in the country. Uh, people will freak out when I say that or think I'm an idiot, but you got to go to really understand it. And a Thursday night game, I think, is when it's at its best, honestly. They have a bar. They have a bar that's actually part of a campus building that extends into the stadium. And Nippert is very unique in, in so many ways. But Cincinnati, um, I'm a stand for Cincinnati at this point. Not so much like I don't have a connection to the program, but I love the city a lot. And that campus is, is to me, one of the most beautiful urban campuses in the United States. A lot of really unique architecture because it is an architecture school literally like juts into Nippert stadium. Cause they had to build around so many buildings and it's right. so insanely landlocked that long story short, one of those buildings contains an on-campus bar. I think it's called the Catskeller. Um, and it, you can go in there, have a beer, go to the stadium. Um, I have done multiple night games at Cincinnati. I've been, I, I've been to West Virginia when they played LSU and they were selling alcohol. I've been inside the, I don't know what the official, I know it. I don't think it's called the tiger club in Baton Rouge, but it's a sort of self-contained luxury area. That's kind of higher up in death Valley um, where, where you have alcohol. Um, I know LSU is pushing for more like of the generic actual concession stand sales of, of beer. Um, I am very much of the opinion that, it's kind of like prohibition or, or, you know, it's a mini mirror to like our whole compensation debate on amateurism in that, like, 
if you if you legalize it, I think everyone benefits from it. Um, Bill, I can't think of a crazier example to give you in college football than than LSU going to West Virginia for a Saturday night game. And what <laughs> and what I saw firsthand was not just insane drunkenness. It's the fact that like people are like, hey, you know, I, like I can just drink in the stadium. I'll just get a beer there. Now, granted, I went to that game in 2000 and I don't know, 11. I was like 30, I don't know, 30 or 31 years old. I wasn't 19. I wasn't 22. So it wasn't like I was completely wasted all day. We did go and visit some of the tailgates. So like people are still getting blackout drunk regardless. What I'm trying to say is that the overall bulk of people that are enjoying a tailgate at a, at a, at a fun or even extra fun pace, if they know that they can get two or three beers throughout the course of a game, it drastically reduces their urge to bring in a flask of high proof liquor. It just does. It just does. <laughs> right. um, and, and at West Virginia, that, that, that night in Morgantown, huge crowd, big game. People are standing in line for beer, right? It, it, beer is not as alcoholic as whiskey and, and, and vodka and everything else, the kind of stuff that you're smuggling in. So regardless of your consumption, you're less drunk. And I think it's just a, it's just a weird – like the crowd dynamics dictate it's a better form of moderation. And oh, by the way, if you're West Virginia – you're making a lot of money off of it. So to me, it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not going to – by the way, shout out to uh, – when you say the word Cincinnati, Stan, I immediately think of our, our co-worker, Diana Sarkisova, uh, who, who is a massive Cincinnati Stan. Yeah, no, yeah she, she and I have um, talked about how great I, that city this, is. I, this doesn't affect me at all because I use the game to get sober. You know, that, like, I want to be able to drive home after the game, so – um, it, this wouldn't impact me one way or the other, but you're probably right. Like the, some of the binging happens, you know, at least a little bit probably happens because you know, you're not going to be able to get any more. Plus I'm a, a snob and I don't think Faro field would serve uh, beer good enough for my, for my $12 or whatever it would be. But I, I do think it's a, it is an obvious moneymaker. Uh, and while you don't want to encourage bad behavior, it wouldn't really actually no, change anyone's behavior. It would, or, it would just, it would, well, it would, it would change it, but it wouldn't change it for the worse. It would just, the divvy, like you said, the divvy. I personally would don't so, watch, I, I personally do not drink when my team that I care about is playing. I am sober on Saturdays because it's my job. And then if I am watching a Falcons game, I'm usually in a room by myself with the door locked with my arms folded because I have a sickness. But no, <laughs> and that's not a joke. I'm serious. Um, what I found before, and I don't know if people listening to this will relate or not. Some people like the group setting to commiserate and celebrate like, oh, you know, we're the, the same 12, 14 guys that you, you go to college with and we all go to the games together and then we watch the road games together. And then like, right. you know, someone will bring a someone will bring over a keg or we'll make a bunch of, you know, particular cocktail, whatever. I get that. I do. I totally do. Um, but I don't have a sense of clarity about the game. I, I just don't like. I if I'm three or four beers in, there's things I I just don't have the same level of like focus about the game, and I don't want to talk <laughs> casually, which is what most of those settings create. It drives me insane. I know a lot of you out there can definitely relate with that. I don't want to go to a watch party. It's the worst thing in the world. It's awful. No, yeah, I really, 
Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I've never been able to do that for like it makes world me games so or in Columbia. Like, well, I, in college I did it a few times, but I just, yeah, like I, the, the only people I, at this point that I will watch a Mizzou game with are my wife because she, she isn't paying attention. She's doing whatever else she's doing. Or uh, my buddy Seth, who we both just kind of murmur to ourselves the whole time. Yeah, so, no, I mean, Pete, like that. We got multiple invitations the last time the Falcons were the the on, during the Super Bowl run. We we're like, oh yeah, the you know the Falcons are playing the Seahawks in a divisional. Like we're having, you know, we're gonna have five or six people over at the house. Like I know Stevens a big Falcons fan. I'm like, no, no, God, no, 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 no. I will be, I will be. A, I watched that game sitting on the floor with my palms on the ground, and I don't scream or anything. I just, it's just a different kind of experience. So uh, to get back to the point of the question, yeah, that's part of that, the drinking affects that. Yeah. Part of being an adult is acknowledging like I am I have to turn this down because it will ruin my experience, uh, even if I want to be social. Um, all right. Last question. Speaking of alcohol, this is this is now like the second in three episodes that we're going to end on an alcohol. We, question. Have, a, we have another alcohol sports question. Our friend Josh Brundage, who has asked questions before at Josh Brundage. I'm in Ireland this week. I have a good grasp on bourbon. Uh, but don't know anything about Irish whiskeys. Any suggestions about what I should try while I'm here outside of like the regular Jameson Bush Mills, et cetera. So so Irish whiskey is very, very weird in that there aren't, I mean, if you're there, maybe you find them, but like in my experience, um, there are only so many uh, distillers. It is kind of like bourbon in that regard. Like bourbon's becoming a little more trendy now, a little more, a little, uh, the offshoot kind of places and whatnot, the small indies. Uh, but for the most part, you're, you're pretty much going to have to try Jameson or Bush mills or whatever. The thing is they'll create like a bunch of different brands within those big distillery companies. Um, and so, you know, I, I basically like any Jameson's that that's not, jameson that that's like the you know the cask whatever with the the stout uh, like aged in the stout barrels or the black barrel or whatever basically anything above jameson i like so you might want try just try those like try the the weird interesting stuff that's a hair more expensive but honestly if you're in ireland the jameson in ireland is probably a little better uh, like I, it, if Guinness, uh, uh, my dad, we went to Ireland when I was like 12, I was too young to really appreciate this, but my dad swore like the Guinness was way better and way stronger, um, in Ireland than, than here. So yeah, just try the regular stuff and enjoy it. It, it really does like all the good Irish that I've tried has, is, is pretty similar in, in kind of tone and, and everything else. And so you're probably going to enjoy life. it no matter what. Uh, Matt Sable asks, is there a rule that you would add to help defenses versus today's spread offenses? A, like a, like change the, uh, yeah, rule change. I know the first thing that every, every coach, I know the first answer that most coaches I know, the three, I know what they would say. Enforce the three yards. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's pretty much force the three yards. <laughs> they would probably try an outlaw RPO. They would just shut down RPO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or they would shrink three to the, I've asked before, I was like, do you think they should shrink three to one or three to two? And they say it doesn't matter cause it's not going to get called anyway. And by the way, what we're talking about, um, is that on a run pass option, yeah, the, receiver. Yeah, yeah. So basically it's a call of an eligible receiver. The, the entire idea of a run pass option is that you are tricking, um, well, 
actually the entire path. I guess the real on a run play and you might pass. Exactly. The real reason is to give you the choice as the quarterback, as the, as the signal caller, the person holding the ball, are we going to run or pass this play? Um, the, the ulterior motive is to confuse the defense as the line drifts toward thinking it's one or the other. And so what often happens on an RPO is that offensive linemen are downfield as if they would be for a run play blocking for a, for a runner, a ball carrier, and then they throw the ball. And what pisses off defensive coordinators, and I do mean pisses off yeah. in a way in which mo- even the like least quotable, least conversational defensive coaches I've ever stuck a recorder in front of will tell you, like they have the time to complain about the drift as one of them called it one time to me yeah. it's, it's the damn drift and there are some great like plays you can find online of like linemen like nine yards downfield or just something hilarious oh, like where the the ref probably it, where you the ref probably didn't even like you can't he, you know it's not even a situation where like oh was he three or was he three and a half yards downfield but he just completely lost track of a lineman drifting into the pass pattern my favorite memory um, of this is that like it's been i stopped going to media days as much really at all but the last Big 12 one I went to, they had, yep. Uh, yep. I think it's Walt Harris. I can't, uh, I should know that. I have, I don't know. Sorry. It's the head of Big 12 officiating. I believe it's Walt. Um, he like gets up and does this presentation specifically on, on illegal man downfield for offensive linemen. And they show an example of Kansas State getting away. Get, Against Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the Oklahoma media there start tweeting about this example. Like, damn it. Someone's going to do something about this. Two plays later, same game. Oklahoma on offense, same <laughs> damn thing. So at this point, if you're even halfway versatile on offense, you're, you've incorporated RPO and into what you do. Um, especially if you have any kind of mobile quarterback. So it's not something that really benefits one team or the other, but it is definitely something that drives defenses crazy. Can you think of anything else? Because off the top of my head, I think that's probably it. I mean, other than like generic stuff, like call holding offensive holding better or whatever. No, that's the, that's the, that's the big one. Screens, right now. And that, you're screens, right. are, screens are frustrating. Um, I know screens are pissing off a lot of, a lot of defensive coaches, um, which is really just a form of offensive holding, I guess, when you think about it. So um, I don't know. That's a really good question, Matt. Um, I will ask it. Uh, I will ask it the next time we get in front of some coaches. And also it, Matt is a pit fan. So I think it's great that someone talk about embodying the spirit of your coach. Cause I guarantee you the head coach of pit has, has screamed about an RPO at least a hundred times in his day. Uh, Bill, we got to get out of here. How many more we got left? Yeah, seriously. I had, to, I had the last question queued up and then you, then you asked. All right, him. Let's, let's, let's take it home. Go home. All right, that was it. That was the last question. Yeah, no, that, no, that, that was the, the one the, the that you wanted question. to ask last. Yes. Well, why did yes. you want to ask it last? Because uh, it was not football. Oh, the whiskey. And on and oh, I thought you yes. meant the. I thought you meant the rule change. Um, no. Wow. All right. One of the stomped all over my agenda, but that's one fine. of the weirder endings to a podcast. Not saying something. Um, Bill, would you like to do a little PSA on the uh, f- near future and the progression of the preview system? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So. The preview's coming up. We've got um, UMass and New Mexico State to finish this week because they were both better than BYU last year, which is 
fascinating. Uh, and then next week we'll finish the Indies with Army and Notre Dame. And then I believe what's going to happen is that there will be a week off baked into the schedule. Uh, because, a week off of the previews. Uh, a week off of the previews, about five, six days of the previews. Because I basically baked in about 10 days, 10 off days into the overall preview schedule. And I've used one through all the G5s. I've missed one day. Um, so we're going to bake some in here. Uh, and then after a week, we're going to start at the, like towards the end of the week after that, we're going to start with uh, the Pac-12. Yeah. And we are on to the Power 5 conferences. Um, accordingly, a couple of people have asked me on various uh, social media things. Uh, are we going to stay weekly throughout the real like summer, summer? Um, you, what we've usually done in the past is if both Bill and I are on like actual vacation, um, we, we might skip. We, uh, the short answer is I think we might skip one to two weeks before, you know, I consider that I personally consider the season sort of starting in like the fourth third, fourth week of July because of the amount of news yeah. churn that we get out of the media events, um, that sort of, to me, is is in season. And I spend all of July and August finalizing stuff for, the, for our preview anyway. So, like, whatever profile I'm writing or piece, and I know Bill's doing the same. So we sort of consider that to be in season. So really between now, as we're in the first week of May, and the second or third week of July, um, I, I can almost guarantee you we will take one week off, probably maybe two. I think last year we took three off and it worked out really well. Like we came back and, and, and listenership was way up. I think people were ready at that point. Everybody was refreshed. So yeah, we might do up to three, but it's not going to be any more than that. Uh, one thing that I'm totally willing to take suggestions on you guys are really good because we did not, we did not really expect to factor in Q and a in this, in this off season as much as we yeah. have, but because we've been, around the around the sun a few times in terms of papn's existence and bill's preview in the off-season structure we knew we would build off that we knew a lot of you weren't necessarily going to be in love with particular stretches of that like if you don't really give a rip about you know half of the mountain west you didn't want to sit through podcasts exclusive to that so q a is factored in a lot we haven't done box score bingo we are i think probably going to bring it back at least just in a concept if we can do something new as a teaching tool um but thank you to you guys for that because it's allowed us to riff, not be beholden to headlines. Because honestly, like knock on wood, Bill, it's been a really quiet off season. So we, and, and if it's not, if it becomes less quiet, it's going to be crap that we have to talk about. Yes, yeah. because nothing good happens in May and June in college football. So uh, kind of in the same vein, we liked the Q and A. We both remarked about when we started the off season that you guys were really carrying it, setting the tone for us, and that's fine. We, you know, it's it's customer service and we're cool with that. So we're probably going to keep this loose format until we get closer to the actual newsy news parts of the summer. Um, but if you guys have an idea for something that's topic based as an entire show, what I think we'll do, um, is probably pre-record something for the July 4th break, which really is truly the Valley. That is kind of the point in which, um, coaches, administrators and media and players are all away from sort of the job, if you will. And so Bill and I can get together and do some sort of self-contained, um, you know, a little bit more of an evergreen podcast that'll carry you through that Valley before we pick it back up. Um, and whatever that topic is, um, that's up to y'all. And, and we do have an idea not to, we're not going to, uh, reveal it, but we do have an idea of our own for kind of the, a very topic specific thing for June as well. So. Yeah. That's a project that's at, that's, um, 
uh, not connected to what I'm talking about because I don't know when that, right. I don't know. We, we haven't figured out the production schedule on that yet. So, um, all right. That's the robot Bill Connolly. You can follow him at SBN underscore Bill C. My name is Stephen Godfrey. You can reach me at 38 Godfrey. Bill, I'm thinking about changing my Twitter handle. Um, so you said that and it's going to, I'm going to get it wrong. Like 426 well, like, times before. I think a lot of people are, I think, I think management's going to be kind of pissed off about it, but I haven't gotten verified yet. I was told by one of my bosses, I have to go get verified. I'm technically supposed to be using a mugshot and instead of a drawing by Jack Kirby. Um, so I don't know. We'll fix all that. Um, there are just too many anecdotes. There's, there's too many bones mott to, to end this podcast. So I'm just going to drop the mic now. I'll see you next week. Seriously.